This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guests this week are the leadership team at Farrow and Ball, CEO Anthony Davey, and Head of Creative Charlotte Cosby, whom I get to call Charlie for the interview. Started in 1946 in Dorset, England, Farrow and Ball has become known for its chalky matte finish, its use on historical British estates, and quirky color names like Elephant's Breath, Nancy's Blushes, or Sulking Room Pink. I spoke with Anthony and Charlie about their quest to highlight Farrow and Ball as a performance option, that SNL sketch, and the challenge of preserving the brand's heritage while reaching out to new audiences. This podcast is sponsored by Morin Giles. Our podcast helps to unfold unique stories. Morin Giles believes the same is true of their natural leather. Since 1933, this Lynchburg, Virginia-based leather company has shared their love for leather with the world. Morin Giles is dedicated to designing and developing the most luxurious natural leathers in the world for the high-end hospitality, aviation and automotive, and residential interior design industries. They also handcraft a collection of leather bags and home goods as an additional avenue to showcase the beauty and timeless appeal of nature's original sustainable material. To shop and sample the world's largest collection of leather, visit morangiles.com. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a podcast I think you'll like. Do you enjoy hearing trusted home advice? On the new Ask This Old House podcast, experts share tips and tricks to help listeners tackle their home improvement projects with confidence. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And now, on with the show. I want to start, Charlie, by by helping to sort of set things up for, for people. So, so Charlie and Anthony, thank you both so much for, for joining me. It's, it's, a, it's a thrill to have you both here. Nice to meet him. I wanted to I wanted to sort of get into sort of a, a left brain, right brain discussion around managing and maintaining this this heritage small batch paint company. And I, I wanted to start, Charlie, if you if you would help us by setting the table with some of the, the history around Pharaoh and Ball and, and sort of tell our listeners the the story of I know Pharaoh and Ball was founded just, just after World War Two. Maybe you can you can tell us the story. Yes, it was um nineteen forty six. There was a gentleman named John Farrow who used to work for an Irish paint company. So he was a chemist. And he met um, Richard Ball, who had actually just survived capture as a prisoner of war. So, you know, they had some amazing um, history between the two of them. And then they got together and actually using some waste product, managed to engineer it into um, a paint, which then was used by the war office, the Admiralty, uh, Ford motor cars. And it all just sort of kicked off from there. And I think it was never intended to be a huge thing. It was like, how can we make head meat at this time? And so... They, you know, turned something that was actually a waste product into something amazing. And then it kind of, people um, got a taste for it and they just wanted more and more. And they almost, a bit like today, <laughs> we with <laughs> demand. But then in the 70s and 80s, lots of paint companies started using um, more plastic resins and things like that because, you know, they were just coming onto the market, becoming far more commercial. But Farnball stayed true to the original formulations and never really got into that um, side of the paint business. And then in the early 90s, a historic interior um, advisor, Tom Helm, and his uh, 
friend of his, who was a businessman, Martin Mefson, took over the business and they turned it into like the luxury paints. So it was like the first luxury paint. So we had showrooms, we had these, I think the names, obviously, people find us <laughs> famous for, like the first paint company to have these incredibly kind of emotive names. And I mean, and actually, if you go back to our archive, when they first started doing names, we had things like fake tan and potted shrimp. So, I mean, I think they've taken <laughs> a step on since that. But they really turned it into a much more commercial um, enterprise and we sort of much more consumer-focused and retail-focused. And then by the end of um, the, the century, we had uh, an online business. We had showrooms in Paris, in um, Toronto, in New York, and it's just grown and grown from there. And then in 2010, we took a really big decision and became the first paint company to actually switch to water-based. So much of our business was oil-based paint. And actually, I think lots of people believe that that's better But our technical team are so good and we spent so long researching it. And it was a huge decision for us because it means changing the whole plant and everything to make sure that we could do um, water-based. But we've switched everything to that to make it far more eco-friendly for everyone, you know, safer for children, safer for being in your home. So that was a huge decision. We've just continued to develop that, you know, further and further. And now, um, now we've kind of, it's really interesting when you track the the progress, the sort of massive on Instagram is our big thing now. So we've we've now got to the point in 2020 where we've got 2 million followers on on social. So yeah, we've had a crazy ride, I think. (laughs) <laughs> it, well, it, it has been a crazy ride, and and you have been at the at the center from the from the creative side, from the brand side of so much of what has has happened. Describe briefly for people your your role at the company, so they they get a sense of all of the things you have your your hand in. Um, I guess I'm just really really lucky. Firstly, <laughs> I was in the right place at the right time because I don't think anyone would have given me the job had <laughs> another situation. But um, I'm just incredibly fortunate that I get to do global creative. So anything visual that you see, I do all of the product development for wallpapers and colors, not technical. So don't worry about that. There is Dan <laughs> and his team, where, you know, put all my faith and do all the technical stuff. But I develop all the colors um, with a really great team um, of Joe and Patrick and all of our agents. And then we do all of the um, photography, all of the visuals, you know, everything visual um, comes under me. So we have a really fun time. Um, Anthony, I want to bring you into the to the conversation. How did you first come to be in discussions for possibly working with uh, with Pharaoh and Ball after after this sort of very prestigious consumer goods background that, that you've got? Um, well, I tell you, my first experience of Faro and Ball was when I was living in Asia and I was coming back to the UK and my wife called me to inform me that she had discovered this fabulous paint. And if we purchased a, a certain amount of the paint, we would have a wonderful person, color consultancy come to help us, you know, design or, or to choose the colors for the interior of our house. And my wife is an exceptionally rational person with a PhD in neuroscience. And <laughs> And I thought, what exactly have you come across that's got you so effusive about a paint and people coming to our home to help um, advise us on how to uh, on how to make a choose a color scheme for our homes? So that was actually my genuine first experience of the of, of the brand and the product. In terms of how I came to um, how I came to the company, it was a very traditional route, Dennis. Nothing particularly unusual. Many companies in the in the home industry end up being bought at some time in their cycle by 
private equity, if they're lucky. Uh, in in Farrow and Ball's case, Farrow and Ball's been, been bought over the years sort of by, by various private equity companies. And Aries, Aries Capital is a, the current owner, and, and we can get more into that later. But I'm, I'm wondering what was appealing to them about your CV, having, having worked for Procter & Gamble for many years, really understanding uh, the, the, the consumer side of the business. I'm wondering why you think they they liked what you had to offer and what you could bring to the company. Um, I'll, I'll give that a shot, but I will be slightly awkward because it feels like I'm talking about myself and, and what they tell <laughs> me and why. I, 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 will, I will give it a go in, in measured tones. Okay. I, I think um, it's interesting you talked about the home decor and the design industry being purchased uh, by private equity, et cetera, et cetera. I think a little theory that I have were founder-owner companies have very often been set up by visionary people who have got a fabulous idea. You know, they've just thought of something, defined something, just like Charlie said with Fire and Ball. And at some point they're either, um, you know, I've done my bit or, you know what, they start to get copied or the world tries to catch up with them. And I think at that point you can see a sort of, I wouldn't say an influx, but you can see companies turning to, not necessarily founder owner creative types, but folks who've probably got a professional background in business and marketing. I'm never going to be able to impact or enhance any of the stuff that Charlie talks about upon which the company was based in terms of creativity and the design and the color and the choice. But, you know, there is a certain rigor to marketing, to business management. There's a level of intentionality, putting clear building blocks in place to grow the company into the future, investing in the capability. Um, we are we are reasonably sure that this internet thing is going to catch on over here in the UK. Um, <laughs> and as a consequence, this could be its moment. This yeah. could be its big moment. Yeah. And as a consequence, you know, ensuring that we've got the right capability and focus on whether it's new media, new channels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think when Aries approached me, they saw that I had that classic business training, business background that could be used to complement the creative skills that the organization uh, already has. Part of your answer in there, Anthony, was, was exactly what I wanted to, to get into a little bit. As you, as you pointed out, it's so challenging for founder-based companies to, to evolve and to, and to grow without often losing some of what made them so special in the beginning. And right. And and somebody comes along and says, oh, isn't it wonderful and quaint that you've got this small batch paint company and that you've got this secret formula that you use to to bring this depth of couleur. But (laughs) (laughs) but 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 we found that we can cut some costs. We can make it for less. We can we can we can do all these other things. We can we can change so much of what makes it so special. And Pharaoh and Ball has managed to maintain that. If if we weren't telling people right now, they might not even know that John Farrow and Richard Ball weren't still sort of stirring the stirring the paint back in Dorset. So that's that's part of what I want to sort of get into a little bit is how does Charlie get to do all of the fun sort of magical things that Charlie does and 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 the rest of the team that it, as you were saying earlier does color consulting does sort of does engages people in in thinking about 
paint and and self-expression and all that sort of goes along with that and at the same time mind the the till in a way that it 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 delivers the the returns that are necessary for the for the private equity ownership that I that I know you you have to answer to at the end of the day. Yeah, I think you you kind of touched again on the on the answer in your question. The key thing is to try and figure out what is core, um, what is the core proposition of the company that differentiates it and and which has differentiated it from everybody else. And then you got to ask yourself, is that still there? And if it is, and still important to consumers today, you know, as you don't touch it, you kind of you protect it, you nurture it, and you you encourage it. And then there are going to be parts of the business that really don't impact that, but there's an opportunity to improve, and it's it's figuring out which is which. So, you know, your point on small batch manufacture is a great example. I, I came from Procter and Gamble, eighty-two billion dollars. The, the opposite. <laughs> yeah, Procter and Gamble literally make things in hundreds of millions of gallons at a time, and the stuff goes down the line at a phenomenally rapid pace, and the mm-hmm. The, the word they use is right first time that the product comes off the the, the, the end of the machine and 99.8% of it is right first time because they can't afford to stop that machinery and tinker and fiddle around because it's just such mass production. This right first time number is really critical. And I remember I came to Fire and Ball and I asked when I was doing the tour of the factory, what is the right first time number? And the guy, very, very, you know, a wonderful uh, factory manager explained that it was 56%. Okay, okay. So a little lower than wow. at Procter, maybe. <laughs> you know, and, and if you're not, you know, obviously I didn't overreact, but I certainly registered <clears throat> 56% is right first time. You know, you could go, wow, we have got a huge opportunity to drive more cost efficiency and effectiveness. But as I was educated and as I learned, it, we have such high specification in our colors. We have such complex combinations of pigments to make the colors that you're just not going to get it right 99.8% of the time, first time. And then we're not going to send something out the door that isn't just right. Our tolerances are very, very narrow. But what happens is I said, okay, well, if it's right first time, 55% of the time, what happens to the other 45% of the stuff? And they brought me in the room, they show me and they scoop it out and they take a draw down of the paint and they examine the paint for its opacity and its color accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. And they're able to identify where the paint might be slightly off, and then they simply remix and add in the appropriate levels of the right pigments to get it to the right level of specification. And right second time is at right 99% or 99.8%. So that was a big education for me. But going back to the start of the conversation, that's a critical differentiator for Fire One Ball. The specification, the, the, the pigments, the ingredients, and the level of accuracy is a real differentiator in the category. And we just simply have to invest in that to maintain that, that, that part of the brand. And if we didn't, and if we went down the other route, we would lose our differentiation from the rest. Of it. So, Charlie, do you understand the, the, no, <laughs> the process that, that – the complicated process that goes into making Pharaoh and Ball paint? Because as Anthony was just saying, this is what really distinguishes the brand and, and, and the – the, the depth of color and the and the the, the romance around all of the colors that 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 have to be just so. So how do I understand it a little bit better? Well, I know you do, Charlie. So don't pretend you don't. I know you do. <laughs> so um, 
it's taken me quite a long time to get there because it is really complex. But actually, when you speak to people, they just know, like, you know, if it's fair and raw. And I think that's something that, you know, it's like a really nice private joke that you have, with, you know, with all of the interiors industry. Like, to your point, I am so glad that nobody has tried to penny pinch or cost save by downgrading that because that's what gives our paint its performance and allows the colour to be stable and strong and have that true richness and, and depth that it does. Um, have you ever heard of the, the word metamerism? No. It's, I love saying it. It's like such a... I've, I want to say it more. Yeah, you should. <laughs> like, try and drop it into the tomorrow. So um, it's the, the effect that light has on colour. And so uh, there's an amazing, in our lab, um, Gareth and Dom, who are the best, have this um, incredible light box and will show you how... If you look at the same paint color in different light sources, it can it will look different, as as most people probably know. So if you are in um, a DIY shop or Home Home Depot, for for example, and you wanted to um, get a paint color, the lighting in there will show up differently. So and you try and match your paint color. The way that we have formulated ours means it looks a certain way under certain lights. In that particular light, you're going to try and match to our colour then you get home put it on your wall and it looks completely different that's something that people you know people think paint is just paint but that is not true and I have to admit when I first arrived here I I assumed that myself you know I was I hadn't even I hadn't got a house I was only 23 so I, I was something that was an education to me and the more and more I've learned the more and more complex it is but it's also like it's just a really magical kind of thing and I think that um I feel really proud to be a part of, but also grateful I don't have to really understand the science. <laughs> you've got you've got a, a good team for that, and, yeah, right? It's amazing! Like I know yeah. I can just trust them to do the technical thing, make everything work to the highest standards. You know, the the accuracy is double industry standards in terms of the color. So um, they've got my back. We're taking a quick break from the podcast to remind designers about nature's original sustainable material, leather. Our partners at Moore and Giles offer you access to the world's largest collection of leather for residential and hospitality interiors. If you're on the hunt for just the right hue or pop of color, visit moreandgiles.com slash leather. And while you're there, check out their new lineup of leather home goods. And yes, they offer trade pricing. Now, back to the show. How do we think, how do you think about growing the company how do you approach growth in your mind and and how do you and how do you think about it one of the big aha moments for me when i came to fire and ball was despite it being very well known in the interiors community and by people who you know have a a, a well-refined sense of aesthetic and a passion for this it's not necessarily very broadly well known so in the united kingdom Fifty percent of the population will say yes, they've heard of Fire and Ball, but if you ask them to name a paint company off the top of their head, only twenty percent will say Fire and Ball first. And um, in the U.S., that number is about one percent or less. <laughs> so, ouch! It's a okay. so the very first thing is now the people who know us love us, but we have actually a very very small number of people who are aware of us outside of the UK. And even in the UK, there's some headroom for growth. So point number one would be of those people who we want to reach, we need to invest more in our marketing and we need to ensure that our marketing um, dollars, pounds are being invested in the appropriate channels. 
Um, and that goes to understanding their media consumption habits, understanding who influences them, et cetera, et cetera. And, and as everybody knows, that's a very dynamic world right now. It's not the traditional print and TV. And um, there's obviously a role for print still, of course, but reallocating a lot of our investment into digital social media, search engine optimization, PPC. So there's a very big opportunity to to simply take the brand as it is and make more people aware. So that would kind of be point number one. Point number two would be, you know, what we stand for. There's a fabulous heritage of the brand in terms of aesthetics and the refined nature or the quirky character. But the other sort of aha moment I had was we haven't talked a lot about uh, performance and benefits. And this is where Charlie cringes, um, where, <laughs> where I have to introduce the appropriate level of communication about not just how wonderfully, uh, you know, how this, how this brand can help you confidently create a look in your home that you're proud of, but also give you the confidence that it's got the, the durability um, to withstand, you know, two kids and a dog, that you can wipe it. Um, that actually as well, it's consistent with your eco-credentials or your outlook on, 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 on life. You know, it's got the same set of values. So we have a lot of opportunity to more overtly communicate, let's call it features and attributes of the brand, not just the wonderful aesthetic. Um, and then there are people who have got, um, one of the, one of the misconceptions I think about fire and ball from some people on the outside looking in may have been that it is a brand which is targeted towards people with more disposable income. And it's really not. It's a brand that's targeted towards people who have a discerning interest in interior design. We have found large groups of consumers who do not look like what may be a caricature or the stereotypical fire on ball consumer living in a grade two stately home somewhere <laughs> in the outskirts, you know, in, in the in the rolling hills of England with high ceilings and beautiful cornices. There are a lot of younger millennials, folks living in small apartments in Upper East Side, et cetera, et cetera, who thoroughly enjoy painting their their flat or their apartment in Fire and Ball. Well, getting clear on who those consumers are that we can continue to grow the business with is another avenue of growth opportunity. So, so Charlie, did 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 John Fowler and and others have a lot to do with sort of helping to create this notion that Faro and Ball was being used on all of these sort of stately stately homes and and the national trust and and all that i think it was actually in the early 90s when um tom and martin took over because tom's interest was in the stately home and i think so from there i think that's where, where things became associated and actually a lot of the paint names do sort of hark back to a hall somewhere or like hardwick white for example is down to hardwick hall you know there's loads of them that all link back to these huge properties and a lot right. of the photography subsequently was incredibly um luxurious palatial homes or mansions or stately homes so i think that that's where people have kind of got caught up but but there are other possible misperceptions out there about and and anthony you and i touched on this a little bit the other day whether it's the ease of use or the some people perceive it to be more complicated and and you raise the you raise the point about um perhaps in the in the past uh the the company has has focused a, a little bit on one specific kind of paint that the company makes, but actually you, you make all, all sorts of different levels of, of paint. Maybe you can help me understand that a little bit better. 
Yeah, absolutely. The the company was known for the finish that Charlie just described. We call it a state emulsion, and it's got a two percent sheen, and it's got an incredible, um, wonderfully rich textured chalky finish. And you just know it's different from any, every other paint when you go into someone's home and you see it. Now, just the the the, the facts of chemistry, unfortunately, are that the more matte something is, um, or the the less durable. And the more shiny and the more glossy, the more durable it's going to be. That's just sort of a, a, a fact of chemistry that has not been broken down. And you may, I always remember like my grandmother's banisters, where there must have been a hundred layers of glossy paint. It was pretty much indestructible going up the stairs. So we have been known, that has been our signature finish, that 2% sheen, um, very matte, very chalky finish. And that's been Fire and Ball's signature finish. And as a consequence, that's how people know us and relate to us. However, we also have a 7% sheen, a 10%, a 20%, a 40% sheen. So we have a range of products that will meet whatever the, the combination of matteness versus durability, washable or wipeable, that any consumer wants. And it's just trying to figure out, like, what is it that's going to make, bring you most joy? Is it going to bring you most joy to have that very matte, luxurious finish but when my daughter tries to do a handstand, you know, go, do I want you putting your shoes on the wall? Or, <laughs> you know, be totally fine with her having her shoes on the wall if she does a handstand because I'm using a slightly different finished paint, a modern emulsion, let's say. So, yeah, it's, it's it, what, what you were describing is not unique to Fire and Ball. It's a, it's a chemistry thing, but we are known for a very specific. Yeah, and, and you've, you've been sort of poking fun at it your yourself in in some of your in some of your advertising and uh the 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 advertisement with the with the young girl who comes over for the play date and sort of has to sign the the contract the the release contract in case she damages the the paint finish on the wall seems to be sort of tongue-in-cheek trying to address this this perception perhaps yeah exactly (laughs) i mean there's two dimensions that one is i think I think self-awareness is a really important um, <laughs> attribute in life, but also for a brand. And I think to demonstrate to people that you know who you are and you know what you're good at and you know where you've got you know, some um, hang-ups or you've got some legacies that you address it. And I think also, you know, we, we're a brand that is used in some very serious environments, whether it's um, Versailles or MoMA or Rodin or places like that. And, and you know, we don't, we, we, we don't shy away from that. We make no apologies, but also ensuring that we don't come across as too distant or unattainable and showing a little bit of sort of humanity and vulnerability and that type of communication, I think is very important. You know, we can be in Versailles in the most appropriate fashion, and we can also poke a little bit of fun at um, interior design neurosis that people may have. Well, and and we should say, I mean, you you've proven yourselves as a company to have a wonderful sense of humor. We we, we touched a little bit on the on the SNL sketch, uh, but I but I do want to share sort of for listeners uh, that that might not be familiar, and I, I hope by now everyone has seen the Pharaoh and Ball sketch from from SNL. Um, but it it was such a a, it's 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 just wildly funny, but but B, it was uh, it was a total surprise to all of you, and I wonder, Anthony, if you can if you can tell listeners sort of the the story of how you even came to learn that this happened. 
Yeah, I mean, we had absolutely no idea this was going to happen. I've lived in the U.S. for 12 years, so I'm very familiar with a Saturday Night Live and the sort of iconic status and the viewership and the careers that it's launched. So it's it's, it's not launched. It's not lost on me the the significance. It was at Saturday Sunday night. I can remember it just happened away on my computer, and I got an email from the president of our North American organization, um, who happens to be an English chap uh, who's lived in the U.S. for a very long time. And he said, have you seen the Saturday Night Live sketch? And I thought, that's a rather unusual question. You know, I was like, no, I haven't. Did you watch the football game? I mean, what's this about? And I said, no, why? And he just sent back an exclamation mark with a link. Was I almost sort of like choked on my tea when I saw this. You are kidding me? So I got on the phone right away and I said, is this actually on Saturday Night Live? He said, I just watched it. So we had no idea this was coming down. This was a complete shock. And uh, yeah, it turns out that one of the senior script writers for Saturday Night Live is a, is a very dedicated Fire and Ball fan. And he very kindly posted, I think he might have been on Twitter, I think he tweeted, um, a picture of a collection of his sample pots saying something like, you know, I couldn't make fun of a, I could only make fun of a brand that I love this much, um, which was pretty cool. And then we immediately thought, okay, we have got to respond to this. Going back to the earlier comment about our awareness in the United States is like below 1% of the average population. <laughs> We're thinking, 9 million people just watched this. <laughs> and another 9 million are going to watch it again on YouTube. We cannot let this moment go. So we, we, we secured a full page, a colorful page in the New York Times, not yet knowing what we're going to put in it. <laughs> so we got the agent. Charlie was on maternity leave, and I'm like, oh, I'll not tell you what I said. I'm like, okay, we've made this financial commitment, guys. We need something. So I drafted something up. You know, I just, apart from business acumen, my general creative genius, I drafted something up. The agency drafted something up. I sent it to Charlie. Charlie goes, definitely not what you've done, Anthony. Go with the first idea. <laughs> So we went with the first idea, thankfully, the agency's idea, and, and it seemed to go, go down quite well. We got a lot of um, we got a lot of positive response from it from uh, the general public, people in the industry. Well, it was a, it was a brilliant response, and you and you took out a full page ad, and you created a special Saturday Night Live special edition, and exactly, it was, uh, I should have said that. Yes, I mean they kind of parodied, yeah. parodied us, obviously gently, and yes. we kind of took out an ad saying, you know, jolly good job. Saturday Night Live special <laughs> edition, brown English roast. And the description was something like a, a light roasting on a skewer gently by a blah, 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 except to the description. Don't let him start doing a new one now. <laughs> well, well, I, and, and I loved that it had a, a lingering aftertaste of charred British beef. That that's was my favorite was. part. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what it yeah. Was. so that was brilliant. And then he sort of answered back, and he, the, the writer from SNL, and he was like, thanks for having a sense of humor, yeah. uh, the which I thought. Is in, um, internally, we've always had this argument about should we use American spelling? So it's been going on ever since I started at Farron Ball, whether we should spell color the way that Americans spell it. And recently, we've kind of come to the conclusion that we would keep color because it's so important to us. We would keep that as the English spelling, but we would adjust everything else to American. <laughs> so I'm glad that we decided to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that raises a great point, Charlie. And I wonder how, when you think about coming into the American market, what, what do you have to think differently about? Because part of what Americans love is the, is the British history of the brand. So in a way... 
Kalur is so fun for them, right? And and that's part of the romance, and that's part of what they what they love buying into. But how, when you think about tiptoeing in to the U.S. market, what do you, what do you think about changing, or what do you think about trying to sort of recognize and speak to? I think um, I should admit that I was very naive originally. When- <laughs> <laughs> how so? <laughs> well, when I first started, you know, I know that Americans like English things, so we just think brilliant. We have a load of English stuff. Yes, let's use this. And actually, the um, America is such a huge place. You know, we focused on New York initially. And I think, you know, you can sort of relate that a little bit to London in terms of the style and things. I mean, obviously, each city has its own thing. But then when you go across to the West Coast, it is completely different. It's like another country. And then you go to another part and it's like another country again. So actually, this the size and the scale of the US meant there are actually so many nuances. And we I remember getting, we had maybe 10 interior designers come over and I, I asked them, what what do you think is missing from our color palette? What colors would you like to see? Because I'm just really interested to see if our palette served the American requirements. And every single one of them said something different. And it was like, oh, in Dallas, they really wanted a brown, but over here they really wanted a blue. And, and I was just thought, oh, okay. I, I can't make bad things. It's not like they've all said you're missing this one color. So right. it just really hit home the fact that actually when you're dealing with America, it is not dealing with one country. It's sort of dealing with lots of pockets of very different things. So actually it's not something I've actually been able to, to sort out fully yet because I think I need to get more um, photographic inspiration from areas so that people can actually relate to it. So as much as everyone likes to see uh, images of English homes, I think a lot of people think, oh, that's lovely for an English home, but not for my home in LA that's very, um, you know, architectural and blocky and the light is very different. And I think, you know, again, I've made plenty, well, one mistake, because you, you know, you only make it once, where <laughs> kind of decorated a New York showroom in a color called string. And, you know, I just hadn't considered how the light is very different in New York. And actually it looked sort of a really sickly green color. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is not a nice environment for people to shop in. If, you know, based on that, I now get someone in situ to check, check what my colors are like before we actually go the whole hog and paint the whole showroom. So um, there's lots of things that, so now I sort of take into account where we are trying to do something, be that West Coast, East Coast or, or elsewhere. Um, I'm trying to get more varied photography that will speak to the people in each of those places because, you know, I understand how difficult it is to visualize things. You mentioned one of the one of the complexities of trying to address the American market. Yes, the the scale, but but also the the level to which different markets decorate and design at with sort of different levels of intensity and uh, and and some markets in the in the south they they practically change the curtains in between courses at dinner and, and right and then <laughs> And then, and then, and then in LA, they're like curtains. I don't want any curtains. It's all about the natural light, and you know. I'm so. I mean, you you can't win for trying sometimes with trying to sort of figure out how to how to address that. And I I imagine that that's an enormous challenge when you think about trying to speak to the American market as as if you could speak to it with just sort of one one voice or or speaking to one aesthetic. No, it's, it's a massive challenge. And I think um, trying to address all of that is, is very, very difficult. But I have to say, in America, you operate really differently to the UK because a lot of the decoration is done by an interior designer, whereas in the UK, that's not the case. 
um, in that sense, actually talking to designers and working with them on projects is, you know, for me is actually a lot better because I then, you know, can, without having to be there myself, I can kind of work through them, which is, is really useful. That, that's such an interesting point that you, that you raise, the, the difference between the, the American market and the, and the UK market. Anthony, I think the other day when we were, were talking, you, you talked about uh, 50 or 60% of the, of the customers in, in the UK are, are just consumers buying the paint themselves and, and often just painting the house themselves. I, I, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. It's approximately that the, the UK DIY market, do it yourself, is much more developed than the US. So there's a much higher propensity of people to buy the product and, and take it home and paint themselves. Hence, the company is quite set up to be direct to consumer. You know, we're, we're set up to appeal to service and romance consumers because it's a very direct-to-consumer business, but with the full appreciation that there's still a, a painter and decorator sort of trade component. Um, and in the U.S., that gets even more complicated because you've got painters and decorators and specifiers and architects and the end consumer and designers and many, many, many people can be involved in the process. Um, and, yeah, we have to sort of take it one step at a time. If I try to put in the resources and the capabilities to keep all of those people happy will will make none of them happy. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about Ask This Old House. Learn from host Chris Ermides and trusted This Old House experts as home enthusiasts from around the country ask questions about the toughest projects in their homes. From electrical issues to landscaping ideas to painting tips and so much more. Learn from the best in the business with Ask This Old House podcast. Subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And now, on with the show. Is it is it at all challenging for you having an American owner with what I'm imagining is a very sort of American t- focus? Does that does that sort of put more pressure on you to tackle this this US market? No, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say there's any more pressure because there's an American owner, I think. You know, I, I was in a previous company and it was a UK based company with a very strong UK heritage. And the owners who were uh, an, an English private equity company sort of looked at America and went, America, UK, not that different. Let's launch in, the, in America and, you know, drive the business there. So I think the pressure is as a consequence of it's a big market. It's a lot of opportunity. And, and we feel we've got the potential to bring a lot of joy and delight to people with what we've got. The fact that they're owned, that they're American based hasn't been disproportionately more or less not really no i mean there's always that kind of like classic story of the boss lives around the corner from the store and you get an email about how many sample pots were on display but thankfully <laughs> thankfully i do not get any of i do not get anything like that whatsoever well since you mentioned sample pots oh, here we go. Uh, well i mean it it's fascinating to me because there are there are those those different schools of thought, right? The one school of thought is give as much product as you can away, get as many sample pots into as many people's hands. That's what's going to drive the business. Uh, and and then there are uh, bean counters often on the other side who are saying, but then that's a very large percentage of your revenue that you're spending on sampling. And And how do you justify that? Where do you come down on this issue, Anthony? Tell us. Yeah, the reason why I made the sort of <laughs> the sort of off comment at the start was the one area, the one area I can promise you where the owners have gently tortured me is on sampling. <laughs> Glad that you bring yeah. it up. 
And, and yeah. yeah, there's like, hey, look, when people love the product, we've got to get it into their hands. Um, but our samples come in these lovely, cute little pots that are very sophisticated, not inexpensive yes. to make, and they've got the product in it, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what I think sampling and paint is, I haven't fully gotten to the bottom yet, Dennis, of all of what it drives. So when you okay. sample a traditional fast-moving goods product, you kind of get the complete experience, you know, whether it's a toothpaste, whether it's a shampoo, or whether it's a whatever. They always give you enough to figure out whether you like it or not. When you sample paint, you get a small pot and you can, you know, you can paint maybe, you know, six square inches in the wall or something like that. Or you get a piece of paper, which is sort of adhesive. You can stick to the wall, but you get a very small experience of what it is you're going to ultimately get. So I think the sampling in paint does not fulfill the full desire of the consumer at this point in time. Um, and it certainly doesn't give any sense for the product uh, features and benefits or durability or washability. So we're actually working with a uh, signed agreement with a, a, a technology company to enable us to take our sample pots and use some very, very cool augmented reality technology, which is now have such a high level specification. It's actually the, the, this, this, we're working with this company who are very closely aligned um, with Apple and Apple's new LiDAR technology on, on the iPad iPad 4 and the iPad Pro 12, there's now a LiDAR technology which allows you to sort of depth find a room. It's almost like radar visually, so it can it can assess the room not just on one plane but on three dimensions, and that opens up a whole new world to, uh, to enable us to virtually, I don't want to say paint a room, but virtually give an impression of what a room or a wall would look like, look like with combinations of our paints. And that's a pretty big deal for us. And I think if you take sample pots and augment it with this type of technology, I think it will enhance the value of sampling. I believe in sampling. If your product's good, you should sample it. And um, just sometimes the sampling mechanism doesn't meet all of your needs. Right. That, that's so interesting. And, and, and we're, we're fascinated by the LiDAR technology and, and Primer, which I'm, I'm guessing might be the company that you're referring to, uh, has a, an incredible app that you can just quickly shoot a picture and and paint a, a wall or put wallpaper on it or um, do, do all sorts of incredible things um, and that seems like a wonderful adjunct to the the sample pot um, I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a cost that keeps you up at night in the fabric industry fabric sampling keeps owners of fabric companies up at late at night yeah um, so I don't know if it I don't know if it represents quite quite that for you but uh, but but the challenge for you, Charlie, is is just as Anthony was referring to. How do you sort of capture the magic of the colors and the story that you want to tell in the in this tiny little little pot? There's um, it's really hard to be honest, and the reason that we suggest you sample is because of the light. If you know you look at the the color in our showroom, and the light there is probably different to what you have at home. So as much as you love the blue undertone that it had there, actually, when you take it home and you use a warmer light, it may appear slightly different. So the, you know, the aim really is to ensure that in your space, it's still, the color still does what you want it to. That's, so, that's a really good point. So it's kind of a practical point. The, the um, technology that Anthony's referring to, actually, I think, then gives you the confidence to make the leap. I mean, even I, who am supposed to be able to visualize, when you just wear <laughs> a paint on the wall, it's quite hard to imagine that everywhere. And how I'll feel when that's that's up. 
So I know that when I when I do a photo shoot, for example, and we paint a whole room, particularly when we do new colours, because we've only ever seen smaller samples of it. So when I first walk into a room that's just been painted in new colours, that's when I feel it and I understand what this colour can do for me. So it's really hard to get that from a square. So, you know, we always suggest painting it on... Um, you know, on a sheet of bit of lining paper, if you have some, or just or a big sheet, so you can move it around the room because there's obviously lots of different light sources around a room. And I made the mistake once of telling my mum to paint um, some cabinets in Joa's white, and we looked at it in the day, but she's only ever in that room in the night, and you know, so that's artificial light rather than daylight, and she's never forgiven me. But you know, we had to, I, so I had to repaint them for her because I had made the wrong decision. But that's <laughs> what is incredibly useful. But in terms of actually, particularly for people who aren't strong with visualization, is um, is you know that technology Anthony's talking about would be is amazing to help you say, okay, yes, I will commit to this crazy color change or, or not, as the case may be. But it, I think that does really really help. But for me, the sample pot is just to check that in situ the color still appears as you want it to. You mentioned, Charlie, the, the new colors and, and really needing to see them and, and sort of understand how they, how they make you feel. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your, your process in developing new, new colors and sort of what you're thinking about and what you're working on as you go through that. Um, firstly, I would say it's not that scientific. <laughs> <laughs> So most of um, the way we come up... I'm relieved to hear that. I don't want it to be scientific. I want this to be just you. But we do have people that can make it scientific. So that's, <laughs> that's okay. So um, basically, we, we only launch colors every two to three years because, we, you know, we have a really edited palette. And I think from, from my perspective and, you know, hopefully all of the people that I work with, you know, and maybe, you know, as a customer, if you've ever tried to pick a color and you have 4,000 different colors to pick from, you suddenly become blind to which is the best one. And it's so difficult. So we kind of made the pledge to make, you know, make an edited palette and help our customers. You know, you don't need 50 yellows. Let me show you the five or six really brilliant ones so that you know if you want light, dark or somewhere in the middle. And then you've just got two to choose from. It's not, it, we wanted to make it easier, but it's harder for us because we have to sit there and painstakingly go through these colors to the point where they all start to look the same. So just like we spend a really long time making sure that the 132 colors on our card are the right ones. And they're the ones that will um, stand the test of time in your home. You know, I'm really not about doing colors that last for six months and then you regret it and you start to feel like your whole room is outdated and, and looks tired. So if we were launching colors every every month, we know we're doing it wrong. So if I had to do it any more frequently than we do, I have done a bad job is, is the only way I can describe it. Because if, if we're doing it right, they, we, shouldn't, we should be able to launch every, every three years when we update. And it's not that we say, right, let's just do some blues. Everyone likes blue. Let's, let's launch a big range of blues. We will go through the color card, analyze it, work out the colors that we started to feel like they aren't so relevant to us. Then we check, you know, so we never check sales first. It's always look at look at the ones that we're not so enamored with at the moment. And, you know, why is that? Um, what do we think could change about that one? And, you know, what do we think is missing? And I work with an amazing um, lady called Joa, who yes. she's a color consultant, as you probably know. And she spends all Indeed. of her time in people's homes. So she really suddenly will start to have a feeling of, do you know what? I need a neutral with a bit more brown in it or a bit more blue. Or So she had, you know, she's really good for bestsellers. I'm good for the ones that look nice in a picture. 
So these are you want on your payroll. Um, but we basically will then go in her kitchen or my kitchen or whatever, get ramekins and sample pots and mix the paint by hand with tiny spoons and paint them out onto the back of cereal packets or whatever <laughs> old packaging we can find. Um, and then we take it to the lab and they're just like, what is this? But then they use their spectrometer, which just looks like a, a giant industrial stapler, actually, um, to read in the color and then can work out which of our pigments will work best to, to recreate it. But in terms of the inspiration for the colors, you know, we work on that constantly. You know, we just bank stuff. So, you know, you'll be somewhere and you see something, you take a picture of it steal it if it's that's an option <laughs> and then um, you just keep them there ready and then it may be that by the time we come to do new colors that one is not relevant anymore and usually we have about 40 colors plus when we're starting to do new colors and we whittle it down to maybe nine nine or ten um any color that we take off so if i remove a yellow from the card i don't necessarily replace it with a yellow so the whole card has to be rejigged and moved interestingly if you move a color up towards the neutral end of colors, it probably sells better than when it's in the, the colored end, which I find really bizarre because it's the same color, just in a different position. Um, yeah. And then in terms of naming, sometimes we have a name first. So, for example, mizzle is an amazing word. We had that before we had Brilliant. color. So we had to then yeah. and work out how we then mixed a color that represented <laughs> and drizzle, um, which is quite hard, actually, but... Um, that was one of the colors that when I walk into the room of that one, it really makes my shoulders drop. You know, it's very, very restful, kind of gorgeous color. Um, and then other way around is that we have the color first and then we have to try and think of a name that goes with with that. So then you have to do a lot of research around around that. We tend to stick in, in terms of naming to um, architecture, nature, um, our locale. So, you know, Purbeck Stone, Lowworth Blue, Wimborne White, they're all local to, to Dorset. So we have a, a kind of very um, small kind of architecture in terms of how we name how we name things. I mean, I can't take all the credit. You know, Joe does a huge part of it. Um, Patrick, who's another one of our color consultants, is involved. We have agents all over the world who are constantly feeding information into us. Customers send us things. So I mean, some of our customers are really, you know, far more into it than I think. <laughs> to the extent we had one person who wanted. Um, they're ashes in a farm ball tin. Yeah, that's not uncommon. What? That's the truth. <laughs> yeah, right. We have we have on several occasions given um, tins to people who have requested empty tins for the ashes of loved ones who are fire and ball fans or who are painters and decorators. Yeah, that is not uncommon. My, talk about brand devotion. Yeah. Even yeah. even in passing, they want to be with their fire and ball. Yeah, yeah, that is that's true. <laughs> they're actually really because they were saying that as part you know a lot of them have had a you know a long-standing illness and part of the way that they were getting through it was to do a decorating project yeah. and it, you know going through colors and doing all of this which had helped them get through that and that's why they then had requested it i mean i still was amazed but it was, it was such a really lovely story actually that you're just like of course we will you know make them a label and everything so that oh and we have there are quite a few actually great stories like that that we, we we as a brand need to just evolve our work there we've had quite a few great stories from people who have had loved ones or children or relatives that may have some sort of um mental illness um uh you know one couple who had an autistic child and they had spent so many times trying to paint a room you know 18 20 times a year 
to try and create the right, the appropriate environment. And they wrote us this fabulous letter saying we've come across, I think it was Rectory Red, one of your colours. And he, the person could never be so happy and they're delighted and they love their room. And there's just lots of, there's, there's, there is a lot, Dennis, around how the sort of the positive power of, of, of light and colour can influence people's well-being. Um, which is an area we want to develop more overtly as a brand and as a business. There's a lot of opportunity there because there there really is very meaningful research yeah. about the the power of, of color, the power of design in general. Yeah. But but uh, but especially the, the the power of 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 colors uh, and and different people react to different colors in 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 different ways. I wonder if there's anything to be gleaned from. The movement in the in the sales of of colors. I, I I find myself wondering during this during this COVID time where you're suddenly seeing all this online activity. What are people asking for? What's what's suddenly become popular? I'm I'm sort of wondering what people are reaching for in this time. Do you know what? It's a real variety. I think. I mean, our best sellers haven't really changed. You know, there's still a lot of blues and whites, but there are other colors that people are starting to consider more because they have more time to consider their space you know they everyone has their own um sanctuary at home and i think right now because everyone is spending so much time there not only have you got to pick something that you can spend a lot of time in you have you have a lot of time to consider what you're picking and therefore do the work as well so um a lot of people i think in this you know we're, they're looking for something positive you know it's very anxious time right now and there's lots of things that make you just want to touch yourself away we need something optimistic and so we're seeing that there's a rise in some of the reds like preference red some of our Mm. darker reds that really cocoon you and kind of give you this sort of glorious warm hug as you enter a room you know something that just makes you feel like it's okay we've got you so um but then on top of that there's still the blues very classic so people are still returning to those we're seeing a bit more of an introduction of earthy tones and i think that's partly because of um the huge focus on sustainability at the moment Lots of colours, um, I think, will start to go that way because when you start to use more natural dyes, they end up being that very earthy, muted colour. So um, like our India yellows and colours like that, um, people are, are being a bit more adventurous with. Um, it's amazing. Like I love the fact that people are being more adventurous. It's it's super exciting for us. I mean, I know that, that whites, because lots of people use white on ceilings, it kind of skew our data because it's you know there's a ceiling in every room and if you're going to paint everything white, which people often do... Um, which actually, by the way, as we're talking about it, you consider <laughs> a colour for your ceilings. Don't just go to white because colour can be a bit more interesting. Yeah, there will, there will always be the neutrals, but I think it's it's an exciting time for us because people are looking at colour more now. And and are there structural changes that you've made to to how the company operates that in, because of COVID that you imagine will will just continue? Are there a lot of things that you've that you've implemented during this time that you imagine will just become part of how you do business forevermore? Yeah, I think there's two two levels to it. One is I don't know if you've seen this sort of funny little meme, which is you know which of the following transformed digitally transformed your company, or which led the digital transformation of your company? A the CEO. B, the CTO, or C, COVID-19. Um, and there, <laughs> there are definitely a lot of things. I think, you know, COVID has accelerated online purchase behavior. I don't know, pick the number, five years, 10 years, 15 years, but there's so many people who have now purchased online, got comfortable with it, and will keep going back there. So having the appropriate infrastructure for um, e-commerce is, I don't, I think, you know, is, is here to stay. 
We have a color consultancy service, which we offer as a virtual color consultancy service. Um, I think that will exist forever now. And there are some people who, you, you know, if, you, if you're a small company like ours and you don't have the, the reach across a large country like the U.S., we can run virtual color consultancy from anywhere. And in fact, we could have Charlie do a color consultancy for someone in Texas if they wanted, you know, the aesthetic that Charlie can offer them, the blue ceilings, et cetera. Um, <laughs> all we That's could- the look you're going for. We'll send you Charlie. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating time, and and it and it seems like the if if the housing market here in the U.S. at least is any indication, there there's perhaps quite quite a, a long cycle ahead of us because so many people have relocated during this time or or added, and and I assume it's similar in the in the U.K. Charlie, right? Yeah, lots of people have, and lots of if you haven't relocated, you're actually starting to notice that that looks a bit shabby or you just want to change because you've been in the same four walls for so long. So from that perspective, there's lots and lots of things and and potential for people to redecorate and continually redecorate. You know, get your home office corner down and find the right colour for that. So from that um, perspective, we do have, you know, quite a good opportunity at this point. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's possibly quite a few things to to stay tuned for with regards to to Pharaoh and Ball. Uh, a, a, an exciting time, and I, I appreciate you both taking the time to to speak with us. This has been been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Su- such a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest industry news, check out businessofhome.com. If you have feedback for the podcast or a story of your own to share write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Marina Felix. I'm Dennis Scully. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next week.